Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid. If you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. We should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahlm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Retrospectating 1999, Stanley Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut. This is a this is a meaty one. This is a steamy one. A lot to, a lot to bite off here. I regaled the audience with my story of how I saw this movie. The first time back in July of 1999, but I'll, I'll just I'll just go quickly here. I saw it on a family RV trip in the Mall of America by myself as a 16-year-old on opening is, day. I don't think it was opening day. It was probably opening week or within a week and a half of it coming out. And but, how well attended was this Mall of America? screening tuesday or wednesday okay i remember it being fairly sparsely attended but there were there were definitely at least a, you know a dozen people in the in the audience age range gender range any other 16 year olds in this particular screen you're really testing my memory here man <laughs> no i'm just curious because you know like this film is so unique and so weird and so kind of unprecedented and uh, you know, it sounds like you didn't have to sneak into it. You just went up and bought a ticket, right? You didn't have any trouble, even though you were underage. Well, it might, you know, it was one of those multiplexes. So I probably, you know, I probably bought a ticket for something else. Oh, okay. Know? So you did. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. Because again, uh, we've we've discussed this many times, but this the Tarzan was, effect or whatever. Yeah, the summer of '99, <laughs> the summer after Columbine, and it was very difficult for under 17 year olds to get into R-rated film. And this was almost an X-rated film or NC-17 rated film. Mm-hmm, we can get mm-hmm. into that, but um, no, I'm just curious about that because. This isn't exactly like American Pie or South Park Bigger, Longer, Uncut in terms of being an R-rated film that's a big draw for 16-year-olds, right? Very, very rare for a 16-year-old to want to see this movie, probably. Um, unless they're unless they were really interested in Nicole Kimmon, which is understandable. Well, there was the promise of, you know, nudity and, you know, it, it's not unlike Showgirls in that it was so kind of salaciously controversial before it even came out. And so I think even, you know, horny 16-year-old boys even if they weren't necessarily cinephiles, were probably still pretty curious about what was going on in this film, right? And the yes, the the orgy sequence was already infamous before the film even came out. That's right. That was the big news story coming in was was the orgy sequence and what they had to edit and if there was CGI involved and <laughs> all, all that good shit, right? Right. Yeah. So how, how did you? How and when did you see this movie in the theater, Matt? Okay, so I was working at the uh, Regal Meridian 16 movie theater in Bellevue, Washington, which is no longer mm-hmm. there. And I managed to talk my way into the pre-screening, the QC screening that you do the night Ooh. before a movie comes out, right? Nice. So when movie theaters get a print, 
they have to run they have to screen the print the night before to make sure that it's that it's good that it sounds right that there's no crazy scratches um you know it's just basically a quality control thing so projectionists get to see these movies the night before they come out and occasionally employees can sit in for these qc screenings and so my friend david schmidt who was uh working at the theater with me we talked our way we we convinced the manager to let two 16 year old boys sit in for a midnight screening of eyes wide shut (laughs) on the night of july 15th right yeah so thursday night at midnight i sat through almost three hours of eyes wide shut and it was really surreal to be sitting. It was just the, just David and I, just the two of us in there in the middle of the night watching Eyes Wide Shut. In this bizarre, this, it, was, it was very creepy, to, and <laughs> and it was a very surreal experience to say the least. And um, mm-hmm. and yeah, that the orgy sequence is so like deliberately off-putting. You know, like it is yeah. deliberately creepy. I mean, I really feel like of all of Kubrick's films. The one this is closest to is The Shining, right? Oh, for sure. Like I wouldn't 100%. say this is this is not necessarily a horror movie. People consider it to be an erotic thriller, whatever that means. But just in terms of like tone and uh, composition, I think it's closer to The Shining than any other film in his oeuvre. Maybe Barry Lyndon in mm-hmm. terms of some of the practical lighting choices. But yeah, erotic thriller. I think that was a studio push. <laughs> I don't think that's really what this is. You know, it's not. A, it doesn't really resemble anything you'd find on Cinemax or whatnot. Well, it doesn't have to necessarily be. We don't necessarily have to put this in a genre box. But what what is this film? What what genre do you think it's closest to? It, it, is it a thriller? Is it thrilling to you? Uh, I don't think it's genreable. It, it feels foreign right it doesn't feel like something an american filmmaker would make and stanley kubrick's not american so that makes sense but stanley kubrick is american oh sorry so sorry he, well he shot entirely in london yes yeah i mean he um, lived and he lived there for decades and decades exactly but he was born and raised in uh, in the bronx right so right, he's right. a new yorker by by birth um no i yeah i don't know i, I i'll say drama that's it yeah, there's nothing. I mean, this Marital is this drama, is maybe. extremely extremely unique film that you can't put in any box, and that is entirely on purpose. So yeah, I was there the night before it opened, and uh, let's just say that afterwards, I felt like I didn't necessarily have the intellectual capacity as a 16 year old, even though I was a you know a burgeoning cinephile. I vividly remember after that screening thinking to myself. I don't think I'm smart enough for that movie. <laughs> like, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think I got it. I mean, I definitely was impressed by it, and I found it striking for a number of reasons. But I don't think I really was able to grasp it on an intellectual level. Maybe I'm, maybe I still can't. I mean, this movie still sort of boggles me in a lot of ways. I've probably seen it five times in my life. This movie is baffling to me. I mean, I'm yeah. so impressed by it, but uh, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily truly connect with it on an emotional level yeah i mean i think this is only the third time i've seen it because it is i mean you have to really commit and it's it's not the easiest watch right um but you know i remember my initial takeaways being that single note piano theme creeped the shit out of me (laughs) and similarly to you i'm not even gonna bother thinking about what this means because (laughs) i am it's not even worth the effort because i won't get anywhere right and this is Sort of pre-Reddit, pre-like, you know, you weren't going to go out and find all the theories immediately um, online. So, uh, yeah, you know, so I came in pretty clean this last viewing last week. I I felt a little more able to sort of take stock in what was going on. Um, I still think it's, you know, intentionally boggling. Sure. Uh, But, you know, there are some 
some theories and some clear themes here. Uh, and, you know, I, I did scour the internet to check out all the bonkers theories. <laughs> okay, give me some of those. Give me a smattering. I, I kind of think we can we can go through a bunch of the individual theories as sort of just a way to talk about the movie. Does that seem... Absolutely, yeah. Tee it up. Let's, we'll start with some, some basic ones. This movie is mostly or entirely a dream. Okay. Isn't the name of the source material, like, dream... Scape or something like that. Like, isn't it? Isn't the book that it's based on? Isn't the word dream in there? Oh, Trump. It's it's based on a book by Arthur Schnitzler called Dream Story. Dream Story. Wow, <laughs> really on the nose, Schnitzler. Well, it's technically in German. It's Traum Novel, which uh, yeah. which sounds much more sophisticated than Dream Story. But the the blunt translation is Dream Story. So mm-hmm. yes, the idea that the entire thing is kind of rhapsodic. It's it, 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 to be fair. It's not all that important whether this is a dream or not a dream, or what parts are or aren't. But that, that's just the the feel you have throughout the entire movie. Sure. And that sort of manifests itself in a number of ways. Just just the general feel and tone is is dreamlike. Um, the New York streets are kind of sparsely populated. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it sort of meanders from incident to incident in a dreamlike way. I mean, the way it's lit, everything about it feels like a dream including stuff that just sort of doesn't make sense and you know following the sort of breadcrumbs that that tom cruise's character does throughout the film even even down to sort of like the interactions with some of the minor characters like i, I always yes. think of his interaction with alan cumming who's in this yeah. film and it's, it's just i mean alan cumming's just a you know a very strange and unique screen presence in general but his approach to this character and that interaction they have at the hotel is just so weird for lack of, yeah. of a more sophisticated word i mean just the intonations of everything like yeah it feels very much like and it, you know and cruz even plays it on his face like what what is what's the deal with this guy <laughs> like what is going on mm-hmm. what is this guy hitting on me like what what is what is this character and i think that a lot of characters in the film you know roddy sherbigia's costume shop proprietor it's mm-hmm. kind of approaching in a in a somewhat similar way, um, yeah. and then there's dreams within dreams, right? Because then there's yeah. all these kind of like interstitial fantasies or nightmares, if you will, about Cruz imagining Nicole Kidman being with these guys that she's been fantasizing about, right? How about this? Both, I mean, and this sort of ties in with it being a dream. Kubrick is basically saying that both of the parties that they go to, the first one at uh, Sidney Pollock's house, and then the orgy are the same, right? Same party or same vibes they, they, what do you mean the same the mask people are wearing out in the public at the first party is, is just like represents the general sort of fakeness and the social hoity-toity elite people so they're they're putting on airs okay, right okay and the second party is just simply an inverted version of the first party right interesting first party people are not secretive about their identity but they're secretive about their desire to fuck right but basically they <laughs> that's what they want to do right okay okay sure in the second one they're secret about their identity but they're not secretive about their desire to fuck interesting and you could and they could very well be the exact same patrons too right exactly we know that city pollock and his his uh friend mandy mm-hmm. they're both at both parties so maybe yes. everybody else who was at that original party is at the orgy too for all we know mm-hmm. except yeah. for nicole so, kidman so so basically the, the idea is that kubrick's talking about just the social elite and and the way rich people interact and just how people go out in public and act like people they're not and sort of 
mask their actual real intentions right okay i like that sure yeah it's it's kind of a simplistic reading i I guess when it really comes down to it but uh i don't know i i get it it could be part of it part parcel of that do you think that Sidney pollock is the uh, red priest no, Sidney Pollock is not the red priest. I, I, I believe Sidney Pollock is the guy with the. I think he's got the pointy chin. I think he. I think he's the mask with the pointy chin. Who remember he nods. He's like up in the balcony yeah. at the beginning and he nods. Okay. I always. I always was un, under the impression that that's who Sidney Pollock was at the party because they they spend so much time you know focusing on that character. The red priest is played by Leon Vitali, uh, Kubrick's longtime uh, assistant. Mm-hmm. And uh, they actually made a. There was a great Netflix documentary called Film Worker that came out last year. That's all about the life and career of Leon Vitali, uh, which is fascinating, especially if you're a you know if you're a Kubrick geek, uh, mm-hmm. it should be required viewing. And uh, he's probably most famous for playing Ryan O'Neill's stepson in Barry Lyndon. Oh, so that's where he met Kubrick, and he just became so fascinated by the man, and they became such close friends that he basically retired from acting just to be Kubrick's assistant. <laughs> That's awesome. So, and he was he was around for everything. You know, he was on set for everything from Barry Lyndon on. And so Kubrick just cast him as the as the Red Priest or whatever we want to call him. Okay. So, in answer to your question, no, I don't think we're meant to believe that that's Sidney Pollock. Well, the hint here, and this is something I found on a random Reddit thread. So <laughs> take that <laughs> as you will. Uh-huh. Uh, is in the pool room scene uh, at Sidney Pollock's house. He pounds the pool balls in a very similar way to the Red Priest when he pounds the scepter. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> that seems like a bit of a stretch, but I appreciate the uh, you know the over analytics of that. That's such a crazy scene too. That whole pool scene, the billiard scene rather at Sidney Pollock's house. It's so it's it's awesome, and they're both fantastic. And Sidney Pollock is just such an underrated actor. I just have always loved that guy. He's so wonderful in this. He's so wonderful in Husbands and Wives. He's so wonderful in Michael Clayton. Um, you know, he's always thought of as a director and, you know, obviously that's how he thought of himself and he made some incredible films and he won an Oscar for out of Africa, yada, yada. But I think he was one of the more underrated actors of his, of his, one of the most underrated directors willing to act. Yeah. And he's, he's perfect for this role as, as, as the rich guy, you know, it's just fantastic. Well, he was, um, he was cast after Harvey Keitel had a scheduling issue right originally Harvey Keitel was going to play that role and I think that there was because of the nature of how long this shoot was I think Harvey Keitel had to drop out he couldn't commit two and a half years to, uh, <laughs> to filming or whatever or maybe yeah. he was fired I'm not I'm not exactly sure how it all washed out but I know that he was originally cast on that role and I believe Jennifer Jason Lee was originally cast as the widow you know when Cruz goes over yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, he gets the he gets the house call in the middle of the night and the widow kind of like tries to she comes on to him Mm-hmm. I think that was originally Jennifer Jason Lee. Interesting. And now it's played by an actress who I believe is uh, Marie Richardson, I think is her name. Yeah, that'd be a very different scene. I I, I don't see Kaitel in that role. I, I don't mean, either. That's... Yeah, it, it doesn't make... It, yeah, Pollock is so perfect. I don't know. Again, like every time I see Sidney Pollock on screen, I always think to myself, I can't imagine anybody else in that role. And, and the pinnacle of that, I think, is Michael Clayton. Like he just inhabits that Marty Bachman role. But anyway, uh, that's an interesting reading. I, I, I never It never occurred to me that he was meant to be the... The Red Priest. Well, there's more people in that orgy scene who recognize Tom Cruise than we have we have slots to fill, right? Sure. Who, who, who knows what, again, this is all up for discussion. So, Speaking of uh, people behind masks and uh, characters and voices, do you know who was the voice of the woman who's uh, escorting Cruise around the party and who's uh, telling him to leave and who ends up, quote-unquote, redeeming him? Uh, no. Who is it? That's Kate Blanchett's voice. 
No shit. Was just revealed a couple months ago, actually. Uh, she was never credited for this role, but a couple months back, she finally revealed that that was her voice. And I think that this was, this was 99, so this is right after Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. So she's literally brand spanking new. She's, you know, she's a newly minted Oscar nominee, uh, but certainly not a movie star by this point. So oh, what um, a thing. crazy, right? Um, this movie is about uh, MK Ultra style mind control. <laughs> you know, that's my DJ name, right? MK is Ultra. It? <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of times that I've uh, that I've been able to, uh, you know, get on the the ones and twos and and spin some vinyl, I, I always credit myself as MK Ultra. Um, yeah, I like that. It, I mean, obviously, the way that people are seduced or gaslighted in this film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not a film that necessarily uses any kind of um, hallucinogenics. There's some heroin stuff and there's some coke stuff, but there's no LSD or anything. So the the MK Ultra thing might be a bit of a stretch. One of the big things is the uh, the Mandy character, and if you if you pause the pause the movie when they uh, he has the article about her death, um, there's a lot of sort of keywords and phrases that are used a lot in uh when when people assume someone's been been mind controlled right such as troubled youth went into rehab knew a lot of people in the fashion industry um (laughs) (laughs) met this uh you know met met a rich guy who took took her under his wing yada yada yada. so like this it's a it's a well uh it's a story that's been told many times okay uh, among the mk ultra believers interesting all right all right, how about this one? Uh, it's about the Illuminati. This seems to be the most common sort of internet one going on here. Okay. Um, there are a lot of pentagrams in the movie, but just in general, the idea of an elite of the elite, right? Sort of running the world and having secret societies and and uh, sort of existing outside the, you know, the normal social realm. Tom Cruise is sort of feeling even a he's a crazy wealthy doctor right sure he is among the elite he feels out of place at the first sydney pollock party so that's the elite elite and then even more out of place of course at the at, at the orgy which is the elite of the elite of the elite right does he seem out of place at the first party i, I seem to remember him being pretty comfortable especially when he's being seduced by the two models right like he looks he looks really like he's in his element if he hadn't got called upstairs by sydney pollock to look after uh you know, Mandy with her speedball. I think the implication is that those models may have, you know, backed him into a corner, right? Well, I mean, there's the scene where right when they show up, and you know, Nicole Kim and Tom Cruise talk about like, uh, why are we even here? Who are these people? Sort of scene, right? So, I mean, that's what I'm basing that off of. They they, they don't seem like the uh, as rich as as everyone else, right? I mean, they make a point of um, the fact that they live on Central Park West, right? Yeah. Like, this movie has a very strange relationship with New York mm-hmm. because it's set there and there's a lot of establishing shots of it. None of it was actually shot there. <laughs> you know, like, it's completely shot in London, just like Full Metal Jacket was, even though it's set in Vietnam. Yeah, and you recreated Greenwich Village and Pinewood, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and honestly, like, at the time, I remember thinking, having not really spent much time in New York at that point in my life, I was sort of off put, like, really, man? You, why? Why don't you set it in London? If you're just going to shoot it in London, just set it in London. What does it matter? What you know? He's an expat. He and his wife are expats. They're Americans. They're living in London. Fine. What does it matter where it's set? Just shoot it. You know, just set it in London if you're going to shoot it there. And then the more I think about it and revisiting it this time, the more I kind of like the fact that it doesn't feel like New York. Like it, yeah. it feels weird. It feels disconnected somehow. And I think that really helps. It sort of underscores the the dreamy 
rhapsodic nature of it all. Yeah, it, it is dreamy. There's just some anachronism. Like just There's off. some confu- Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is just there aren't that many people on the streets of New York, which right. usually there are way more. Sure. And yeah, and the, yeah, you're right. It's, it, it just it seems a little off. I, I do think there's something to this. Do you think Kubrick was saying anything about sort of social classes or the wealthy and how they exist and what they're able to get away with? I mean, there's you know, there's the runner where you watch this movie, you're like, how much cash does Tom Cruise carry around all the time? Like, he keeps paying people <laughs> in does. wads and wads of cash. He does. He's paying off prostitutes who he doesn't actually sleep with. He's tipping, you know, he's paying hundreds of dollars to um, rent a costume in the middle of the night. Yeah, you're exactly you're exactly right. I mean, the the idea of this movie's relationship with wealth or its criticism of the upper class, um, mm-hmm. I, I do think that this movie is a lot about not just class, but also sort of like barriers to entry. Like mm-hmm. they keep when he gets to the orgy, almost immediately they just keep telling him that he shouldn't be there. He shouldn't be there. You're not allowed to be here. It's dangerous for you to be here. Like he wants to be there so badly, and he's he's jumped through hoops to get there, and then. <laughs> All, pretty much all they do is just tell him that he has to leave, that he's that he's not allowed to be here, that he shouldn't be here. And I really, um, I really identified with that. You know, like the idea of like wanting something so badly, wanting to experience something so badly, wanting to go somewhere so badly, and the world just kind of saying like, "Sorry, man, this is you know, it's not your night. Like this mm-hmm. is not for you." <laughs> and the, just the frustration of that, right? Yeah. And they the barrier to entry is so high that they actually end up like attempting to scare him off from ever trying to infiltrate that again right you so are not allowed here that we're actually going to lead you to believe that your life might be in danger if you try to infiltrate this again yeah i mean knowing who kubrick is though like i i can't imagine there's any part of him that ever felt like oh i wish i could do this thing that i can't do with these wealthy people right i think i think it's more just about his commentary on you know the times I'm sure he's been to events with these rich people and extremely wealthy people mm-hmm. and sort of been off put by the entire thing. And maybe it's the idea that, you know, rich people have so much, so much wealth and are so bored by it that they have to create these sort of artificial constructs to entertain themselves in this artificial gatekeeping, like you're talking about to make themselves feel special because, because of the emptiness and the, and the sort of soullessness of the, the wealthy lifestyle, which is also sort of, an ongoing theme of this movie, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the film is explicitly about sexuality, but is sexuality just kind of like an allegory for something else? I yeah. mean, is this is this I mean, the pursuit of sex, you know, whether it's the orgy or dealing with prostitutes or the promise of being with an underage girl in the case of the whole weird Lily Sobieski runner, it, it, is is it just face value? Is this movie just about this horny guy who is exploring his urges or is sexuality actually a stand-in for something deeper? Yeah, the sexuality part is interesting and, and we can get into that. I mean, that's one of the theories that I need enough to look at and watching the movie is something, you know, I watched with my girlfriend the first time she ever saw it. One thing she kept saying is Kubrick is filming this like he is doing his best to out Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise's relationship with sexuality, thoughts about his sexual orientation and the ways he his characters that he's played over the years, whether it's with Kelly McGillis and Top Gun, or whether it's you know Vanilla Sky, I mean he he has an interesting relationship with sexuality throughout his career. We've been able to see his characters become more and more asexual over the course of the last twenty years. Let's say right, yeah. Like is his most the, the, his two most sex sex forward his two most sexually aggressive characters 
are Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia, both of which came out in 99. Yeah. Ever since then, he has slow. He has just started to become more and more and more asexual to the point where now when he's on screen with female characters, there isn't really romance implied anymore, right? Like there no. isn't necessarily a romance implied with he and Emily Blunt in Edge of Tomorrow. And even though he and Rebecca Ferguson have a really interesting relationship in the last couple of um, uh, Mission Impossible movies, to me it never feels romantic so much as like a lot of professional mutual respect. Right? Yeah. Or am I, I mean, or, or is it, or is there a romance implied that I'm just not? I mean, there is, but also in Mission Impossible 3, right? That's, uh, oh God, I'm forgetting, blanking on her name. Michelle now, but, Monaghan. Yeah. Yeah, Michelle Monaghan. So there is it's some very of that, but. It's kind of chaste, though, right? Like, it's very It's sweet. extremely chaste. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there is one, they do get married at the hospital, and there is kind of like a fumbly little consummation scene. But to me, it always feels very kind of like sweet and kind of chaste. Yeah. So, so here's the thing if you read this movie as Kubrick outing Tom Cruise, I think there's a lot of evidence to support it watching the film, right? Okay. He keeps butting up against having sex in a number of different scenes and always says no, and he's frustrated by it, right? Okay. He keeps almost, you know, whether it's uh, the prostitute, whether it's the two girls at the party, Lily Sobieski, whatever, even going to the orgy and still not consummating anything. Like, it could be representative of his sort of internal frustrations and him wanting to make himself have sex with women, but just not being able to, right? Yeah, I mean, this movie is kind of defined by sexual frustration, right? Yeah. Like, we never actually see he and, you know, he and uh, Nicole Kidman are canoodling a little bit, but you never actually see any explicit sexual act between the two of them, right? And And even in that scene where they're canoodling, he's (laughs) looking at himself in the mirror. Interesting, yeah, yeah, sure. That's great, yeah. And there are a lot of scenes where he's staring... Like, really intensely into men's faces, men's eyes hmm. during this movie. Okay. So, all right. So, I you mean, like that one? Well, I, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, I, I don't buy it because I just have a hard time <laughs> believing that, like, that was Stanley Kubrick's ulterior motive was out yeah, in yeah. Tom Cruise. I mean, he, you know, he'd been he'd been working on this project for years. He, um, he bought the rights to the book in the 70s, I think. Yeah. And uh, and originally wanted to cast uh, Woody Allen in the main, and then I think uh, for a while it was Steve Martin that they'd been talking about, and then I think Harrison Ford was discussed at one point, and then I think right before they cast Cruz and Kidman, briefly it was a Kim Basinger Alec Baldwin thing. Yeah, memory serves because I think he actually got to the point where he was kind of adamant about casting a real couple in this role, which is really interesting. Uh, you know, like that's a. <laughs> Ballsy, that's a risky move in a lot of ways. And at this point, Cruz and Kidman had already been in two movies together, Days of Thunder first and then Far and Away, right? Yeah. But they they were quite possibly the most high-profile married Hollywood couple of the 90s, right? Uh, Yeah, they were. And, you know, reading some behind-the-scenes stuff, it seems like maybe this is just in retrospect sort of retconning it, but it seemed like it was sort of on purpose. He wanted that tension to be there. He yep. wanted to put them through some stuff and make them make them feel things that they might not other otherwise have and you know casting two people who weren't together might have been difficult to get those feelings and also casting two people that weren't together and taking them out of their individual lives for 2 years without each other that might have been difficult as well but yeah i mean i think it's a masterstroke i think it's kind of the it's the movie's sort of secret sauce the fact that that relationship is so authentic and they 
got divorced shortly thereafter, right? They got divorced in 2001. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is another theory too, Matt, is that Kubrick was intent on breaking them up <laughs> during this movie. That wasn't right? necessarily uh, the implication I was exploring, but I, I like that. I like that theory. I mean, I've never been particularly interested in the whole Tom Cruise is gay narrative. It really doesn't interest me that much. The same way that the whole Kevin Spacey might be gay narrative that that ran that was running for the last you know twenty five years yeah. and has finally you know was finally confirmed. That doesn't interest me in the least. But I certainly get why a lot of people are fascinated by it. And I don't necessarily think it's so much that he is or is not homosexual. I think it's that because of his personality and his work ethic and maybe his relationship with the Church of Scientology, who knows, he almost kind of like transcends sexuality, right? And I'm not necessarily saying that's a good thing. I mean, that might be incredibly unhealthy, but to me, he just almost seems like he's just operating at a, from a different plane. Maybe he's, I mean, bisexual. I I think he's just like post-sexual or something, right? Sure. (laughs) That's just kind of the way that I think about him. And that's, this movie is a really interesting central text in this guy's career. Because it is the one where he actually fully leans in and commits. And it took somebody like Kubrick to get him to commit to a subject matter like this. Whereas, you know, with the exception of early in his career, I guess, like losing it or, you know, risky business. There's obviously, sure. you know, all the right moves. He and, uh, yeah. he and uh, what's her Leah name? Thompson. Leah Thompson. Uh, exactly. So there's, there's that when he's younger. And, you know, obviously there's stuff in, in Top Gun. But, you know, and then there's also the homosexual overtones in Top Gun as well, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Amy Nicholson, uh, who used to write for the L.A. Weekly, kind of wrote the definitive book on this guy's career. And anybody who's interested in exploring Cruise more deeply uh, should seek that out because she's a critic who I don't necessarily always agree with. But she certainly is extremely comprehensive in her reading of his career. And she, she points to Interview with the Vampire as being kind of like, the the pivotal cruise performance and and cruise mm-hmm. text and really I, to me I think it's eyes wide shut Magnolia Vanilla Sky kind of an underappreciated remake maybe we can do, we could do a double feature between that and um, Open Your Eyes because I know that's yeah, a movie that, that both of us have a lot of opinions about but I, I, to me th- these three films Eyes Wide Shut Magnolia Vanilla Sky probably the three most important cruise performances for me I mean. Casting him in this film, considering where he was at this point in his career post Jerry Maguire, I mean, an argument can be made that he was the biggest movie star in the world when he was cast in this film, right? But still not really thought of as being one of the great actors of his generation. Like, I think working with Stanley Kubrick in a movie like this legitimized Cruz. Like, this was a a huge coup, and it was a big deal. Like, it was a real anointment for Cruz to be like, hey, man, Kubrick handpicked me to be in his final masterpiece. There's been a legitimacy to crew. I mean, you know, maybe he has squandered that, you know, over the last decade or so, or maybe, you know, everything like post jumping on Oprah's couch, uh, <laughs> has been a different chapter of his career. But really at this point, it was just the stamp was just like, all right, Tom Cruise is the real thing. You know, he'd already, he already had two Oscar nominations by this point, but I just feel like being cast in eyes wide shut, it just leveled him up in a way. Like, in, in critical esteem, right? Yeah, absolutely. And he is terrific in this movie, right? He is. And so, you know, you mentioned that you don't buy any of the, the outing thing, and, and that's fine, be, but you said because all these other people were considered for, for casting choices. But I will say there's lots of talk that there was a lot of rewriting of the script on the set, sure. right? And Kubrick obviously was changing the script depending on who was being cast, and he clearly wanted a real-life couple in it. So the idea that he would want a real-life couple sort of speaks to the fact that he was considering 
making this sort of a meta commentary on whoever was in it, right? Okay. I think you can take it as kind of like what Punch Drunk Love was for Adam Sandler, like <laughs> a commentary on the characters he had played in his career and what the reality of how those characters really act. Like this is just a different way of viewing the freaking water boy or Billy Madison or something like this, this, this man child and, and sort of the real frustrations or whatever would come, come from it. And this is sort of the, the pent up masculinity that he's been displaying to the world that he can't really act upon um, because that's not who he is. And sort of this movie's kind of about the fragile male ego too, right? Sure. Like he learns that his wife was considering infidelity and what does he do? He he goes to a literal orgy, right? Like he try, <laughs> tries to find a literal orgy to feel more like a man. Yeah. He, he kind of hits all the points of, what, what do you call it? Midlife crisis, right? Middle-age NUE. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. he goes to a prostitute, doesn't end up sleeping with her. He has he gets exposed to an underage girl and doesn't end mm-hmm. up exploring it. But it's, it's basically sort of offered to him. I mean, who knows what Lily Sobieski whispers in his ear. But the look, yeah. the look on her face when she you know raises her eyebrows obviously suggests that she's propositioning him. Yeah, um, he reconnects with a college friend exactly. who hasn't grown up. Exactly yeah. right, and then and then you're right. Then he actually goes to an orgy. So yeah, it really is like this this descent. You know, like just hitting all these bullet points for the yeah middle aged and we or whatever you want to call it midlife crisis. The only thing he doesn't do is like you know rent a Ferrari or something, right? So let's go back to Illuminati really quickly because okay. I, I read this fun fact. Um, well, conspiracy theory that Kubrick was murdered by the Illuminati before the movie came out. <laughs> it is um, so exciting and interesting that he died six days after screening his final cut for Cruz and Kidman and the studio heads. Like, yeah, that's it's crazy. It's so crazy and it's so fantastic. And reading that, I'm just like, that's how I fucking want to go, man. I have, <laughs> I have zero interest in any sort of retirement. Uh, I want to either, you know, die after I've, you know, completed the final cut on a film or I want to die after I've called cut on like the last day of production of a film, which I think is pretty much how Alt- didn't Robert Altman go out. Didn't he go out within days of finishing um, A Prayer Home Companion? Yeah, something yeah, like that. That's, that's how I want to go. And there are conflicting opinions as to whether Kubrick was satisfied with the final cut or whether he was concerned. And Arlie Ermey, who played the drill sergeant, uh, Full Metal Jacket, and apparently was a very close friend of Kubrick, claims that Kubrick was absolutely despondent about the cut and was worried that the critics were going to eat him alive. Todd Field, who plays Nick Nightingale in this movie and is a very accomplished director in his own right, claims mm-hmm. that Kubrick was elated and thought that it was the best work of his career. We'll, we'll never know exactly how, how he felt there at the end. But, I mean, the theory is that he was so happy with the way the film turned out that he finally was able to relax, that he finally was able to breathe, yeah. and that allowed him to shuffle off the mortal coil, right? He, he, just, he breathed a sigh of relief, and he had a heart attack in his sleep, and that was it. It does lend credence to the fact that, like, if you have a job to do, you're not going to die. Right, like people stay alive longer when they have things to do, mm-hmm. and we've seen this with these directors nowadays, with like Ridley Scott or Clint Eastwood, people who are just like, if you keep working and you have something to do, then uh, your body's not going to let you just. I, you know, I think there probably is some credence to it, as long as the Illuminati didn't actually kill him. Okay, well, yeah, I interrupted you when you were saying. So you're saying that there's a theory that the Illuminati was so angry that he had outed their secret orgy practices that they just went yep. to his house and, and pulled a... Speaking of Michael Clayton, they went over to his house and like you know hit him with a, a lethal dose. Yeah, and so... Between the toes. You don't you hear a crazy fun fact? Always. He died 666 days before January 1st, 2001. Okay. <laughs> uh, 
a nod to his most famous film, 2001. Interesting. <laughs> um, you, you know, who, who, who knows what Kubrick it. was exposed to in his time among the wealthy? I mean, we've seen... You know, the Jeffrey Epstein scandal is going on right now. Like, the, the idea of these rich people's sex cults is not, you know, it's, 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 there's some real shit going on. Um, <laughs> although I'm not a believer in the Illuminati. I mean, what do you think all the pentagrams are for, man? I mean, there is just a lot of kind of religious symbolism. There's just like a lot yeah. of iconography in this movie, right? I mean, there is throughout so much of Kubrick's career, but, you know, it feels like a very hallowed religious text in a lot. Like, I don't think the film's explicitly about religion, but, the approach feels very hallowed and maybe yeah. that's just, maybe that's just the Kubrick aesthetic. You know, you could probably say mm-hmm. the same thing about Barry Lyndon, but I, I don't know anything about the Illuminati. I mean, I just always associate them with the, you know, the Freemasons or, you know, what <laughs> these other kind of secret societies. Right. But I, I, I love the fact that this movie kind of basically defined for people what a secret society sex orgy would look like i mean from here from from eyes wide shut on out this is what we think of orgies as looking like when in reality it's probably a lot of kind of like overweight sweaty swingers you know who are just trying to spice up you know like from from what i've heard from people who've actually like gone to orgies or swingers parties people that you meet at those places don't tend to look like the women in the at this particular orgy you know most men most of the time they're not wearing venetian uh, carnival masks. Yeah, I mean, but th- that's why you have to use mind control <laughs> that's to get these women to the bar. The MK Ultra that comes in is the implication that the women at this party are prostitutes. Uh, yeah, I would think prostitutes are high end escorts. I mean, I think the connection with you assume the prostitute, uh, what's her name, is is Domino. at the party. Yeah, <sighs> that's interesting. And that's and, and that's and she she was one of the ones who tried to help him, and then they injected her with HIV. Oh, is that? Oh, that's funny. I never made that connection. I always presumed that that would, that the whole HIV thing was it, it's based Just a little irony. In her exactly, way. like oh, that was the tragic irony that like if you had slept with Domino last night, you probably would have you you would have been infected with HIV. Now, like his choice to not sleep with Domino allows you know he he manages to um, narrowly avoid um, mm-hmm. contracting HIV. I never made the connection that the Illuminati or the Secret Society or whatever infected her with HIV. Maybe that went over my head. Well, we knew they we know they killed Mandy, right? Yeah. Well, or did she just overdose? Because we have been we, we we've actually seen her overdose, so we know there's a precedent for that. So mm-hmm. I mean that's that's kind of what Sidney Pollock is saying, right? He's like they're they're trying to scare you, they're making it look like they killed Nick Nightingale or that they killed Mandy, but in reality Nick Nightingale is on a plane back to Seattle with his family and Mandy just overdosed because she's a junkie. Right? I mean, the movie is always trying to they're gaslighting you you know that's what all these people are doing right it's very intentional that he's never giving you any answers right yeah and i think that kind of culminates with why is the mask on his pillow when he gets home like who put Mm -hmm. the mask there is nicole kidman aware of what happened did Sidney pollock put the mask there because we don't know when he lost the mask right he takes the mask off at the party and everybody sees his face and then he gets to the costume store and says i'm sorry i must have lost the mask Mm -hmm. but does he put the mask in the safe when he gets home and did they come and steal it out of his safe? Like, what happened to that mask, and how did it end up on his pillow? Yeah, I don't know. I don't have any theories about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, obviously, I, <laughs> it, it's a movie that's intentionally asking more questions than it's giving answers. And I, I really, you know, I feel like the best films do that. Like, I think that cinema is is a medium of, of asking questions, not necessarily giving answers. That's one of the things I like about it. 100% agree. Um, do you think 
Kubrick set this movie during Christmas it's merely as an excuse to flex his lighting muscle. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, so there's a lot of theories about why the film is set at Christmas time because apparently the original um, novel is not. Uh, there's a quote from a film critic named Lee Siegel who was writing for Harper's Bazaar, and he he believes that the film's recurring motif is the Christmas tree because it symbolizes the way that, quote-unquote, compared with the everyday reality of sex and emotion, our fantasies of gratification are pompous and solemn to the extreme. For desire is like Christmas. It always promises more than it delivers. Okay. So the idea would be that... Not always. Sometimes you get an N64, <laughs> you know? I, I think that's very telling because uh, for adults, the promise of sexuality is kind of like Christmas Eve, right? Yeah, like the idea of going out and spending time with someone that you're attracted to, the possibility of intimacy with a person that you're attracted to fills you with the same sort of anticipation as you get when you're a child and you see the presence under the tree, right? And I don't want to mm-hmm. necessarily conflate intimacy, you know, sexuality with just, uh, you know, material <laughs> with, with an N64, for example. Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. There should hopefully be something a little bit deeper <laughs> in terms of the connection. But I do kind of like the suggestion that opening the N64, opening the, the wrapping paper to reveal the N64 is maybe not as satisfying as the anticipation that there might be an N64 in that present. The same way that the anticipation of what intimacy is going to be like with somebody that you're extremely attracted to, oftentimes not quite as, or, you know, the, the anticipation of it is sometimes more exciting or more vital than the follow-through but uh but yeah you talked about the uh, the aesthetics of it um yeah this movie is almost completely lit practically practical lighting is is defined as lights that you can actually see in the frame so if you see a lamp that's on in the frame of a film uh, we refer to that on set as a practical kubrick really really wanted to light this movie almost exclusively with practicals the way that he had done with uh, barry linden you know that movie's all lit with um with uh, practical uh, firelight actually you know, it's all candles in that movie, at least for the yeah. interiors. And this movie is almost completely lit by practicals and lots and lots of Christmas lights. And man, they really pop. Like it's a mm-hmm. sexy, it's a, it's just a striking looking movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, lit and shot by the gaffer on both Barry Lyndon and The Shining. And actually does not have a very deep filmography uh, as a cinematographer. Like he famously shot Only God Forgives for Nicholas Wending Refn. But for the most part, he was mostly, uh, you know, a gaffer and an electrician on so many of these Kubrick movies, which leads me to believe that Kubrick was probably very, very involved with the cinematography of his film. I mean, you know, famously was working to invent you know lenses with nasa you know like working with nasa to like use these crazy lenses for barry linden or inventing you know optical effects for um 2001 i mean stanley kubrick was a still he came from photography he was a still photographer for look Mm -hmm. magazine right so it makes sense that he would be obsessed and fascinated with lighting and lenses so i think the fact that that larry smith is credited as quote-unquote lighting cameraman not cinematographer probably speaks to the fact that kubrick probably very very involved maybe not necessarily operating the camera but was probably extremely involved with the um, with the photography of this film and most of his films. Yeah, right. But I, I love all the Christmas lights in the frame. Not to get too geeky, but they also did this push processing thing. If if you want to simplify it, it just means that you're leaving the film in the stop bath for longer, right? So mm-hmm. it causes the um, light sources to really bloom, and it causes the colors to get way more saturated. And this push processing stuff, and you know, bleach bypassing, all these sort of photochemical things got really, really in vogue in the late '90s and early 2000s, right before we switched over to digital. So you know. A lot of Kubrick stuff, a lot of Soderbergh stuff, a lot of uh, Tony Scott stuff. If you look at their films around the turn of the century, you see a lot of this photochemical experimentation. Even Saving Private Ryan. Part of the reason that the film looks so striking and so otherworldly because of the uh, push process.
posing that they did in the film. Guinness World Record holder for longest continuous shoot. Uh, I think it was like 400 days or something. Started shooting in November of 96, wrapped in June of 98. Oh, I mean, we know about Kubrick's general meticulousness, but do you have any other thoughts about the reason why this movie took so long and why he did so many takes and all, all these things? I mean, do you think Kubrick knew it was his last movie and wanted to sort of just relish the... Uh, <laughs> relish the time on set or do you think it was more to sort of you know the th- there's a theory that he was just he did so many takes to get tom and nicole to feel like there wasn't a camera there and to be more naturalistic and more tension filled or whatever like i mean do, do you have thoughts on that not really i mean it you, you look at this film and you can't understand why they would have spent 400 days on it right yeah. i mean i think it's a fascinating movie i think it's a beautiful movie i think the performances are incredible and, and i you know it's very everything is very deliberate and exacting the way you expect from a kubrick movie and it is pretty long at whatever you know two almost two and a half hours but um, but no i mean you look at this like 400 you guys spent like three years on this movie it's it's crazy you know it, i, I kind of there's no big set pieces there's nothing there's no big flourishes there's there's no takes that you watch and say like oh that must have taken forever like the, the, there's nothing all that splashy about it no i mean you look at some of fincher's stuff and you kind of understand why you know, he, he's he's famously probably sort of like the heir apparent to Kubrick in terms of how many takes he does and how specific he is with the detail, you know, every detail in the frame. But you look at some of his stuff and it's so it, it's so special effects intensive and there are so mm-hmm. many just elaborate set pieces. You kind of get why he spends so much time on that stuff. But I mean, this is a movie about just like quiet moments and pauses in conversation and whispered desires. I mean, it's just it just feels so sort of like insular and intimate. Right. I mean, the only Mm -hmm. true set piece is the orgy sequence. Yeah. And and it is elaborate and it is, you know, kind of audacious in its own way. Mm -hmm. But uh, but no, I mean, I would I would love to have been a fly in the wall on this set to understand what what the working relationship was between Kubrick and Kidman and Cruz and why this stuff took so goddamn long. Tom Cruise. I mean, he's been pretty open, it seems like, about how he didn't have a good time on the set and didn't really developed an ulcer, I think, famously. Yeah. I mean, that's why he hasn't done more or really any sort of prestige movies since then with like real auteurs or you know he hasn't done really that many oscar bait things since since the late 90s so i it's interesting to mark this as a real pivot point in, in cruz's career path because yep. it's not like it was an embarrassment for him I and mean, this movie was very well received his performance was very well well received but he hasn't seemed to challenge himself in this way since then it might simply be because he didn't enjoy the experience yeah that's fair i mean you mentioned that it was well received i think that the critical reception at the time was respectful because it's like you know Kubrick was already dead by the time the movie came out so I think there was a sense of like all right we need to we need to respect and we need to celebrate his final masterpiece but you know it's sitting I think it's sitting at 75 percent of Rotten Tomatoes um Mm -hmm. you know certainly not the most acclaimed film of his career and was nominated for zero Oscars was a pretty decent sized hit made a hundred and um uh, 62 million dollars at the box office worldwide decent for an r-rated a long r-rated film dealing with this subject matter mm-hmm. but um came out in july of 1999 just crazy to think that this was a summer movie right i mean and it just not just the fact that it's set at christmas time but the subject matter and the filmmaker it just this seems like it should have been an award season movie right not the middle of summer yeah it's really confusing that it was not a christmas time or at least thanksgiving movie right i mean did warner brothers have another big movie in 1999 that they were waiting for christmas or something maybe it was just because it had been so long you know it'd been three years by this point he had spent over a year editing the thing maybe they're just like 
we got to get this fucking movie out, man. <laughs> like we first be done with it. Yeah, yeah, we're four years into this experience. Let's just get this thing out. You got two of the biggest movie stars in the world. That's going to draw no matter what time of the year you. It is crazy that neither Kidman nor Cruz were nominated for this movie, right? Seems like a big oversight. I mean, Nicole Kidman is fantastic, and she would have been a really perfect supporting actress nomination. And who got nominated for best actor? Like Tom Cruise should have been should have been there. That was the American Beauty, right? That was uh, Russell Crowe versus. Uh, the aforementioned Kevin Spacey. So yeah, it, it does seem crazy that Cruz wasn't in there, but it almost seems crazier that Kidman didn't get in there for supporting because she re- she's got those meaty monologues, right? Pretty stacked supporting actress that year, actually. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I mean, I mean, the whole reason that we're talking about this year is because it was such a good year. So obviously, yeah. every every category ninety nine was going to be pretty stacked. But um, she really, really digs her teeth into those. You know, the the one big monologue that sends him out on his journey. And then the monologue she delivers when he gets home the next morning and wakes her up. Yeah. Like those, I mean, those just seem like total Oscar bait scenes to me. Yeah, the whole the whole smoking weed scene is, it's good, but it's not, as, as someone who's who dabbles, like it's, it's, it's not really how people act when they're stoned. Although, I mean, she, she, she goes for it, though. Yeah. I don't know, Richard Farnsworth in The Straight Story, Sean Penn, Denzel, Russell Crowe, Kevin Spacey. Uh, Angelina Jolie, Girl Interrupted, she won. <laughs> she won, yes, of course. Tony Collette, Sixth Sense, Catherine Keener being John Malkovich, Samantha Morton, Sweet and Lowdown, and Chloe Sevigny for Boys Don't Cry. Nice, yeah. Bad. I was actually just talking to somebody about uh, Sweet and Lowdown last night. I adore that movie. Boy, that's a pretty darn stat category right there. It is crazy that Angelina Jolie won. That was... <laughs> It's a chilly really, role. You yeah, know. yeah, I guess so. Oh boy, what a phenomenon she was in the late 90s. So yeah, so like you said, sixty, you know, $162 million on a $65 million budget. No Oscar nominations. 400-day shoot. Critically respected, I'd say, at 75 Rotten Tomatoes, but not considered to be amongst Kubrick's best, right? Or has it been reevaluated and is now considered to be amongst, you know, do people speak about this film in the same hallowed tones as 2001 and Barry Lyndon. Uh, like, what I, is the you know, film's critical legacy now? Has it has it gone up, or you know, has, has the esteem gone up, or has it come down? I think I saw somewhere that uh, the, you know BBC had a list and they named it the second best movie of the 1990s. Wow! Someone had it as the 63rd best movie of all time. I forget which which publication that was. We've seen some retrospectives this year on some of the movies we've covered, but not too much press about Eyes Wide Shut's 20th year anniversary. I don't know. I mean, I think it's just a hard movie to really sit down and watch and, you know, similar to our initial 16-year-old reactions. You have to really examine this movie. It's sort of purposefully obtuse, so you're not going to come to any real conclusion. You kind of just feel dumb. <laughs> so maybe people are just uh, avoiding it for, for those kind of reasons. And Kubrick left enough of a filmography that this doesn't really need to be one of his most celebrated films. You know, like with all Kubrick movies, I think this will only increase in esteem as the years go by. Thematically and aesthetically, it fits right into his filmography really nicely and I think it's a really nice note to go out on not one of my favorite Kubrick films but a a film that I am absolutely fascinated by have been fascinated by for the last 20 years and doesn't feel like him going out with a whimper doesn't feel like him really swinging for the fences the last time out just feels very comfortably right in the middle of his impressive film he didn't make that many films but he also never made a bad film you know like I'm not crazy about Lolita and I'm not crazy about the second half of Full Metal Jacket but I still respect those movies this to me is just a really solid note to go out on and uh, and I agree with you I think people 
I have reevaluated and reassessed and now are much more reverent of this film now than they were in 99. I think in 99 people were, you know, he'd had sexuality in his films, of course. There's sex, there's obviously sexually explicit scenes in, in Clockwork Orange. This is such a perfect Kubrickian treatise on the idea of sexuality right like it's exactly how yeah. you'd expect stanley kubrick to to mm-hmm. approach the idea of an orgy in in this just very audacious way the the whole narrative around his career and the fact that he died six days after presenting the final cut is really just a nice it's kind of you know queasy to talk about his death in like a joyful way but like it's it's really it is it's a crazy bow to his career it's pretty like, cool it's, yeah i mean everybody's yeah. gonna you know everybody's gonna go eventually so uh it's it's nice yeah. that he got to like screen it and then uh, went home and died in his sleep. Like that's yeah, I mean, awesome. He was only seventy, though. He could have he could have had another one in him. Yeah, he just died of a heart attack, right? Like I don't think he was. Yeah, died of a heart attack. Illuminati <laughs> died of a heart attack in air quotes. Yeah. So, do you think that this is one of the most important films of nineteen ninety nine? Do you think it? Do you think it was worth? revisiting just beside the point that it's one of our great filmmakers final films it remains really striking and it's a incredibly unique you know i'm not sure how indicative of 1999 it is aside from featuring two of the biggest movie stars of that period it exists in this timeless dream world kind of so yeah. you know i i've seen some articles mentioning this movie touches on millennial wealth and how modern rich people live day to day and this sort of ennui that goes in, you know into that but you know i i think this movie is going to be just as effective in as much as it is effective now um just years and years and decades into the future so i i think it's yeah i think it's super important mostly because it's you know one of kubrick's you know it's his last work and it's a kubrick film but uh yeah i'm glad we glad we touched on it and it is it is very weird that it came out july 16th in the middle of the summer this is such not a summer movie i guess it was, i guess counter programming was what, what what they were thinking yeah I, I don't know exactly what they're thinking, except they're just like, hey, we got movie stars. Movie stars mean summer money. Um, yeah, if you can see this on the big screen as well, do yourself a favor and try, you know, like occasionally they'll obviously, they'll do, you know, Kubrick retrospectives. I was lucky enough to see a 35 millimeter print of this at uh, LACMA in LA when they were doing their Stanley Kubrick Museum exhibition. Have you ever... Have you have you have you gone to that? It, it it tours around. I'm not sure if it's made it to Seattle or not. No, I haven't gone to that. It's really interesting. If it ever comes to your town, try to check it out because it's a fascinating exhibition. Uh, I was just in London a couple weeks ago, and it was there. And I was thinking about seeing if I could carve out a little bit of time to go check it out <laughs> because it's just it's just a wonderful like for cinephiles. It's just like Disneyland. Um, but yeah, they were doing screenings during the exhibition, and I got to this was the only one I got to go see. And boy, it really fucking pops on the big screen. It is a sumptuous film to say the least. And yes. again, I I don't know if I can use the word like. I don't know if I could say I really like this movie or that I have much cause to revisit it. I'm. It's not necessarily a pleasurable experience. But goddamn it, I respect it. Some movies you don't want to judge qualitatively based on their rewatchability, Matt. Fair. And that that would be one of these movies. I mean, this is a uh, yeah. You have, really have to be all in, and I think once once a decade is a good good amount. <laughs> fair i feel like that was respectful and incisive so i'm proud of us for that all right this has been retro spectating 1999 matt you want to tee up what our our next uh, movie in this series is going to be m night Shyamalan's the sixth sense which is a movie that we actually covered on mm-hmm. our afi series a couple years ago so yeah. it'll be interesting to try to dig a little deeper and see if we can uncover some, you know, something new about this film. A film that I don't think either of us are 
super crazy about and it's a movie that i have a complicated history with let's just say that it's gonna it kind of feels like homework to be going back to the sixth sense for the podcast i'm willing to uh, i'm willing to sit down and do the work i'll sit down and i'm willing to sit down to do it because you're willing to sit down (laughs) i'll sit down i'll take notes because i'm a fucking professional oscar and on that note we shall say goodbye uh thanks everyone and uh we'll see you next time